The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, another busy week in the Premier League. We round up all the big stories from City Forest at the Etihad, with the Holland fling continuing, to Isak at Anfield, to the Sack at Bournemouth. Plus, big look ahead to the weekend, of course, with the Merseyside Derby and Man United Arsenal. All of that and more in this Totally Football Show. Thursday the 1st of September and listener hello to you who's on board today well we've got Duncan Alexander of Opta and The Analyst Duncan hello Matt Davis Adams of Straight Out of Cobham and Matt what the EFL yeah that's right thank you for plugging that James new football league podcast if anybody is um, so inclined do check us out now on all your preferred platforms are you done and Charlie Eccleshare of view from the lane. Charlie, it's a big day today. What have we got? Uh, oh, yeah, transfer deadline day. Indeed, hello. Also, something else pretty big dropping. Mm. Yeah, Matt Davis Adams' yeah. new fridge is being delivered when, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm worried that will overshadow news of my book coming out. But Your you book! Know. Yes. Your book's coming out. Your book. And all the fridge stuff has just diverted our attention. The second coolest thing happening today, yeah. Wow, <laughs> nice. Uh, Charlie's book, listener, if you weren't aware, is called The Beautiful Poetry of Football Commentary. Mm. I'll ask because we're all thinking it. How many times is Matt Davis Adams in it? <laughs> <laughs> Matt Davis Adams isn't in it, I'm afraid to say. What? Well, you know. What is in it? What's the best line in it? Spoiler. A lot of Drury um, as the sort of poet laureate of football commentary, I suppose. Right. Um, what? It, which have you? I mean, I know you've not kind of. It's not a. It's not a competition to be the best, but Roma Barcelona usually gets a lot of love. But is there another Drury gem that you'd like to highlight? Well, from him, I mean, he reached the sort of peak Druriness when Cristiano Ronaldo returned to Manchester United, and he gave this. Because it wasn't during a match even, it really could be sort of scripted. And he gave this slightly ludicrous... I, this isn't necessarily my favourite, but I think it's kind of the peak of Drury. Where he's sort of wreathed in red, a walking work of art, which is obviously also a line from Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Oh. Um, but it's kind of ridiculously stylized uh, and sort of, yeah, it felt like Drury at the peak of his powers. God bless the Premier League as well was another great one from him. <laughs> nice. When, uh, a goal for all City. the Premier League. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. A goal um, for Africa is in all Africa is in there, of course. Matt, as somebody who is a commentator yourself, what's your favourite commentary line? Um, well, I've said it on this show before, but but it's it's true. It's the, it's Aguero. It's Martin Tyler's Aguero. It's really? As much, it's as much about the nine-second pause after he says Aguero yeah. uh, as anything else. And, uh, yeah, the line that, that he pays it off with, I swear, you'll never see anything like this ever again, is magnificent. But I was looking at this yesterday, and, and actually Peter Drury's, I remember I, I was working... Um, 
on the games that weekend and I had the world feed commentary of the City game and Drury did that and uh, he said a lot of things but, but one thing that I remember very clearly is where does football go from here? Wow. <laughs> Which seemed very very Drury-ish. And, yeah, there, there's just, quite just a bit, on point. There's quite a bit of that. I mean, one of the excerpts in the book, Gary Neville, when Chelsea win the Champions League in 2012, he bizarrely says, stop football! Which is... <laughs> A, it's a weird thing to say any time, but it's hardly... I mean, that game was good, it was dramatic, mm. but I don't think it was sort of stop football worthy. Well, I mean, maybe he was describing, uh, you know, Didier Drogba's career at Chelsea, which essentially <laughs> was that. Mm. Matt, equally, is there a, a kind of a least favourite commentary cliche that you, you kind of hate, but then you find yourself using and, and then despise yourself in the dark, lonely hours of the night or something? Yeah, basically any piece of commentary I've done if it's within 48 hours of listening to an episode of Football Clichés becomes something that I hate I was going to say there should be a podcast dedicated uh, <laughs> <to this topic. laughs> yeah. I tell you what I don't like at the moment there's two mm. things one is a shot having to be bang on target it can never just be on target it always has to be bang on target mm. and there's a new thing which Carragher's at the forefront of of like a double positive he really should he's got to score that he really has and it's just like mm. we don't need that all the time <laughs> that seems to be creeping in a little bit uh, mm. but yeah generally well, it's also you know the the birthday today the 21st birthday of Emil Heskey could it be five which is another fairly famous commentary yes. that's, that's also nice. that's also in the book and I think Heskey's autobiography is a nod to that game it's called Even Heskey well, Scored which is didn't Brian Moore die the same night in a yes. strange wow. coincidence so. yes hmm. I mean, Brian so Moore. also the anniversary of that yeah what a commentator mm. he was by the way mm. <laughs> by the way probably my favourite Charlie, right up there. In honour of your book, I've written some football commentary poetry myself. Ooh, yeah, it's called "Farewell, Scott Parker." <clears throat> <laughs> Farewell, Scott Parker. You didn't wear a Parker. It might have been something you were into if you'd managed to last until winter. Instead, you wore your heart on your sleeve with those three stripes, but just underneath. Still, Bournemouth's decision was final after watching your side. Losing 9-0. It was all too much for the Cherries. The sort of score you'd normally get at St Mary's. Mm. I'm, I'm no Ryan Giggs, but I was pretty happy with that. <laughs> Extraordinary. Yeah. That was lovely. Thank you, yeah. Well, on the subject of Bournemouth and the departure of Scott Parker, the Athletics' Ahmed Shubal actually joins us now. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Ahmed, thank you so much for joining us. Scott Parker sacked on Tuesday. Just four games into the season, Bournemouth not in the bottom three, so tell us why. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, well, uh, the main reason is Parker's comments after recent games uh, rubbed the club's hierarchy the wrong way, to put it plainly. Um, it started during pre-season, uh, making comments like the team are under-equipped and we barely have any defenders, uh, which was true because at that time, I think he made that comment after the, the Real Sociedad game, which was the last pre-season game, um, that the team only had, well, the squad only had three centre-backs at that time. So he was right to complain, but I guess it's about how you go about uh, addressing those sort of issues in the squad. And um, yeah, from, from that moment, uh, the owner, Maxim Demon personally reached out to Parker to get him to tone down those comments, which he did. Uh, until results started to turn and then we had that 9-0 against Liverpool where he basically, uh, he was asked essentially if, if that 9-0 would be the lowest point of the season and he replied, I can see some more to be honest with you, which is a remarkably damaging thing for a manager to say. Mm. Uh, and yeah, I guess so. That was, I guess that that comment after the Liverpool game was the straw that broke the camel's back really. Mm. 
Amit, can you see more of that kind of thing on the way, given the situation that Barker was outlining? Um, it's difficult to say. It depends how they approach the rest of the season. I mean, so Bournemouth last season in the Championship were one of the most attacking sides, played with a very attacking 4-3-3. Coming to the Premier League, Parker changed that to a 5-3-2, which was very sort of, uh, you know, low block, sit back and counter. Um, but they were essentially sitting ducks after a while because, you know, it, it, you can only take so much pressure with the quality of players that they have right now. Um, and there was a feeling that if they kept playing within that, within that style, that very conservative style, then they weren't really going to get much out of the season. Um, and they have very, very attacking, uh, expressive players in the squad like Dominic Solanke, Philip Billing, Lewis Cook and all the rest of them. And so it's, it's very difficult for them to, to play that style of football after being so attacking last season. Because we, we just saw, we saw a glimpse of what life looks like after Parker in the game against Wolves uh, last night. And um, it wasn't as attacking as you'd expect, but there was a departure from that five at the back for the majority of the game. They went to that to see out the game at the end. But um, yeah, the, I think if they play with a freedom, which I feel like they should do with, given the plays they have, um, I, I, think they, I think they have much more to look forward to uh, in the Premier League. OK, it was nil-nil uh, at home to Wolves on Wednesday under interim manager Gary O'Neill. I read that the club are looking long-term for a progressive manager. I also read that Sean Dyche is the early favourite for the vacancy. What's your what's your expectation? Um, it's difficult to say as of now. I know that the club aren't going to be looking at um, any managerial candidates properly until deadline day is finished, which is understandable. Um, but I think <laughs> Sean Dyche is a funny one. I think it's just his name is his name's being um, sort of talked about because he's available and he's a, a manager in the, I guess, in the forefront of a, of a few football fans' minds. Mm. But um, I think... I think the club will be looking for, a, as I say, a progressive, you know, a progressive style, one that suits the players that they already have, um, and one that will allow them to take the game to opponents a bit more than what, what Scott Parker did. Uh, that in theory, what Parker wanted to do in terms of playing with that five, you, you can see it makes sense theoretically because five defenders means more defenders, which means I guess you should be better defensively. But when you're shipping you know, nine goals at Liverpool, and obviously Liverpool are one of the best teams on the planet, but, you know, nine goals at Liverpool, four goals at City, three goals without reply, you know, it, it, it start, you, you know, it, it, it doesn't look great. So I think they're looking for someone who can unleash the attacking potential of the, of the, of the players they, they currently have. Who that is, I guess, remains to be seen. Well, it does. Brilliant. Ahmed, many thanks for joining us. And uh, you'll be you'll be off at, uh, in Nottingham watching them take on Forest, will you, at the weekend? Yeah, 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 should be. So that, that should be very, very interesting because that was a, a, also a very exciting game which ended up clinching Bournemouth promotion in May. So, yeah, should be another exciting one. Are oh, there sunnier times ahead for the Cherries? We shall see. Ahmed, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Mmm, you can hear more of Ahmed in a Bournemouth special of the Athletic Football Podcast, which is out right now. Bournemouth at Nottingham Forest, Saturday, 3 o'clock. They did the double over for us last season, Matt. Yeah, a couple of caveats there, though. I mean, the game that Ahmed just mentioned that, that clinched Bournemouth's promotion had some pretty whiffy refereeing in it. And the first one, Forest were managed by Chris Hewton, so that doesn't count. Ha, <laughs> OK. As for Scott Parker, Duncan, is he the earliest managerial casualty of a Premier League season? He isn't. He's not. Even in the top 10, actually, there's been quite a few that went um, a bit sooner. The fastest remains Paul Sturrock, um, rumoured because Rupert Lowe saw him eating a fried egg bap on the training pitch, but it's never been fully confirmed, but it's a nice a nice idea. shows how much our league has, has moved on that 
I don't think Friday. That, that was 2004, 2005, mm. or actually just yeah, 2004. Nine, at nine days into the season. I mean, I guess Parker is the he's the the quickest kind of manager of a newly promoted team to mm. to get sacked. But I think it's quite interesting, isn't it, with with Armand Dev that when when you know the club, it, it actually makes sense. A lot of people from the outside were like, "Well, this, you can't just sack a manager because he's lost nine 0 Well, that isn't really you know why it happened so I think it probably is the right decision um, although a, a weird quirk at the moment is that only Man City and Brighton have kept more clean sheets in the Premier League than, than Bournemouth this season so uh, maybe they're better than uh, people think Suits Scott Parker doesn't it as well I think you know Bournemouth likely get relegated this season particularly if he was in charge and then he'd have two relegations on his CV already whereas now there's a bit of hand-wringing of oh isn't it unfair that they got rid of him I mean Sean Dyche as his replacement just feels like the, the most wrong managerial appointment there could ever be Sean Dyche and Bournemouth stylistically geographically can't imagine him I on the south coast at all. no there's not many worms in Dorset but actually there might be it's a Jurassic coast I think there coast, probably are yeah. Uh, Q, sorry to interrupt, but Q says in honour of the departed Scott Parker and his beloved and pricey cardigan. Not sure what the impact in marketing terms for Tom Brown of of that 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 cardigan look being so associated now with manager of failure Scott Parker. Uh, but Q says if the panel were Premier League managers, what would they wear on the touchline? Would it be a raid on the club shop or a statement suit? Very briefly, Charlie. Definitely a suit. Mm. Matt, club shop. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. What you'd wear like training. Yeah, yeah, I'm a kind of a scruffy guy anyway. I'd avoid the baseball cap because I think it makes you look a bit like a tennis coach in the, in the <laughs> cases of Tuchel and Pulis particularly. But yeah, okay. club tracksuit, fine. Duncan. I would insist, insist, whatever the commercial arrangements at the club, that I got to wear a mid-90s Umbro car coat. <laughs> okay. For anyone who wasn't around in a car in the mid-90s, what is a mid-90s Umbro car coat? I don't know why they were called car coats, but they were just like really big, sort of thick. Imagine kind of Peter Reid on the touchline in sort of the mid-90s and, yeah, very mm. over-padded. I think Alex Ferguson wore one a few times as well. They're like they were, a Wenger prototype, weren't they? Yeah, they were like a cool... Quite Wenger baggy prototype. shell material, weren't they, sometimes? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk us some midweek scores. Arsenal beat Villa Wednesday to continue their perfect start to the season. Brighton, meanwhile, suffered their first defeat. That was at the hands of Fulham. There was an upset at St Mary's 2, where Southampton beat Chelsea 2-1. There were 1-1 draws for West Ham and Spurs, Palace and Brentford, and Leeds and Everton. No goals whatsoever in Bournemouth Wolves. Six goals for Man City against Nottingham Forest. Holland with his second straight hat-trick in that match and late late on Wednesday a debut strike for Fabio Carvalho with the last kick of the game at Anfield saw Liverpool winning 2-1 over Newcastle setting them up very nicely for Saturday's Merseyside derby alright well let's start with Liverpool Milner to take the corner Van Dijk wrestling inside the Newcastle box Gomez heads it on Salah jumping couldn't get enough on it still not clear Fabio Carvalho there at the death at Anfield. Who else, then with the post-game interview, who else hands up here uh, thought, wow, this guy speaks really good English for someone who's just arrived from what sporting Lisbon, <laughs> probably. Yeah, yeah. Balaam's Fabio Carvalho. Yeah, indeed. So when I first heard Armando Brocha talk, I was like, wow, he's, this isn't what I was expecting. <laughs> from Slough, isn't he? Yeah. David Brent. Yeah. 
So, uh, well, wild celebrations, as you would expect for Liverpool, who were staring down the barrel of a major dent in their title-challenging aspirations, but instead pick up a, a mighty three points. Not as big as the 9-0 against Bournemouth at the weekend, but perhaps just as important. Did, did Carvalho keep Liverpool in the title race? Mm, quite possibly. It would have been five points, wouldn't it? But it, it feels strange to say that in August. It was certainly a very aesthetically pleasing goal, probably the, the most of the midweek. You know, cannoning off, off the crossbar with the goalkeeper, flinging his hands up just a second. And collapsing. Too late. La- yeah. Lavia's for... Uh, is it Lavia or Lavia's for uh, for Southampton against Chelsea was pretty good. But that yeah, was we good. Can... It was the shade. The keeper slightly ruined the aesthetics of that, I thought. Oh, so, really? So, okay. Yeah, just by slightly pushing it into his own net. Right, lovely, right. Lovely strike, though. But in terms of drama, no question. Right at the death, what was it, 97 minutes in, Matt? Yeah, ninety-seven, ninety-eight, I think. But as Duncan pointed out on Twitter, you know, the the added time is a is a minimum. So I don't really mm. get the complaints for that when Nick Pope was down for what at least two minutes, maybe a little bit more. Joe Linton as well. Uh, but yeah, it's just classic midweek Premier League, isn't it? You always seem to get the drama in the midweeks um, more so than at the weekends for for whatever reason. But it's weird that Liverpool keep going behind. Is that eight mm. of nine games? Yeah. That conceded first in that seems like a something that needs to be rectified pretty quickly. Mm. The irony being that, of course, it was Newcastle themselves who had contributed the uh, the material for so much injury time with their various uh, ailments in, in the course of the second half. They had taken the lead, and when we're talking about fine goals, a salute to Alexander Isak on his Premier League debut. That was a lovely finish. So emphatic. He did another one in the second half as well, which was mm, ruled out. Better. And that, yeah, and like if you can finish like that, you're going to get a lot of goals, I think. <laughs> Keep <laughs> in the top go. corner. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, Liverpool, however, did manage to come back. How? Well, I mean, I think they always, you always had that sense there would be a siege in the second half, um, given how much is at stake. I mean, as you said, they, they would have been aware. I mean, I think if they'd lost, they would have been eight points behind City, and even a draw would have been seven, which. Okay, they you know obviously there's a long way to go, but City are not a team that tend to drop a lot of silly points. Um, so I think it, they, they were always going to come at them strong in the second half. It was fairly relentless. I mean, I think the, the only shame for Liverpool is that they didn't. The best thing about beating a team that's doing all the time wasting is that then you have the moment when the goalkeeper ha- takes a goal kick and has to suddenly take it really quickly because <laughs> they're now losing. That's one of the great things. In football, the sort of satisfaction of then taunting that keeper. And I don't think they, they, they got that moment. But they'll probably go over that. To Charlie's point, they Liverpool had 23 shots. 18 of them came in the second half. Newcastle had five shots in the game and one of them came in the second half. So it was very much, a, you know, shore up the defence, have have a few cramps. You know, you never know when cramps going to strike you, particularly in, uh, in a Premier League match. So, um, but um, yeah, and then it really properly kicked off on the touchline as well with mm. bottles being thrown and, and a kind of a very passive-aggressive stance from Jurgen Klopp where he kind of just stood there with a big grin um, and sort of a, you know, a sort of outside a pub car park sort of nod of the head. I, I quite liked it. He, he likes to let Pep Linders do his battles, isn't he? Very Jose Rui Faria kind of <laughs> relationship that. And when you, put, dog. when you put Pep Linders up against Jason Tindall, the warring <laughs> stag factions on a paintball outing energy is just <laughs> absolutely ginormous 
Um, it's interesting, I thought, that in the space of nine days, the narrative's kind of gone from, ooh, Liverpool's old decrepit midfield might cost them the title to Harvey Elliott's going to lead England to glory at the World Cup. He was really good. I mean, he played the pass through to Salah for the assist for the first goal and he kind of drove Liverpool forward. He was running to get the ball back from the crowd, you know, sort of urging everyone on. He did did seem to sort of, um, you know, take that responsibility really, which was impressive to see. And then obviously with Carvalho scoring, it was very much a sort of Fulham-powered uh, uh, win for mm. Liverpool, really. Mm. He is also the kind of player England have so often lacked, Harvey Elliott. So I, I can see why in, there is in a In what way, Charlie? Well, we, I think the player, I can barely remember having the sort of player, you know how Italy produced these guys, I know he's not this sort of player, but someone like Verratti, someone who can get on the ball and from central field and actually play really progressive passes. We've tended to have you know, defensive midfielders who are a bit more kind of focused on the defensive element rather than being progressive from deeper positions. I mean, I think the great white hope for that for so many years was Jack Wilshere. Um, but obviously he then had the injury. And, and often, actually, he, he had some pretty good performances for England. Um, but obviously, he, he was never able to sustain that. But yeah, I think, you know, that's... Uh, and, and that's why someone like Jude Bellingham as well is so exciting in what he does. So, you know, maybe he can make a late a late charge. Do you see him starting this weekend as Liverpool travel to Goodison Park, where they haven't actually lost for 12 years? Crikey. Well, Henderson is a doubt for that, isn't he? So I, I don't know how many options they'll have um, in, in mm. midfield. So, yeah, I think he, he could well do. OK. Darwin Nunez uh, will be available again after his suspension, which is a worrying bit of news for Everton supporters. Nunez so f- <laughs> ones as well. He was getting quite aggro on the touchline watching the game yesterday. Like a, yeah, like a... Like a teenager at their first game was getting very het up at points. Mm. You feel that his his inclusion could be a catalyst for something one way or another? Well, this game, you know, obviously everyone knows this fixture's got the most red cards in Premier League history. Um, We've already talked last week about how this season slightly feels like 2020-21 when Liverpool lost to Villa heavily and there were a few sort of odd results at the start of the season. Now that season was the one where I think in the same point of the the campaign, Liverpool went away to Goodison um, and Jordan Pickford injured Van Dijk in that game. And Thiago got injured in as well. Yeah, so it was pretty pivotal that much. And it kind of feels like, you know, Everton still searching for for some sort of form at home to Liverpool who look a bit brittle. I think, yeah, it could could be narrative heavy, this one. I do, I do like with Darwin Nunez, after that first game, after that game we got sent off, the commentary at was sort of like, well, you know, he, he'll never last a game if he can't deal with being wound up by defenders. As if, like, because this had happened once, he's just going to go around headbutting people in every <laughs> single game he plays. Like, it might have just been an emotional reaction. Like, he has played football matches before where he hasn't done this. So, uh, yeah, let's see. Mm, let's see. It is a feisty affair with the uh, Merseyside derby. Everton coming into this winless in the Premier League, but also on a four-game unbeaten run in all competitions. They had a 1-1 draw at Leeds Tuesday night possible debut in this match for Neil Mope who wasn't available for Tuesday's games because the Premier League staff don't turn up on a bank holiday Monday which was controversial for some less so for others Everton and other players coming in news may well have the midfield duo of James Garner and Gunnar Gay uh, well Gunnar Gay rejoining them from PSG 
But James Garner, Matt, you can tell us all about him because he was at Forest last season on loan from Man United. He was, yeah, he was at loan uh, on loan at Forest for the last two seasons actually, and I think they're quite disappointed not to have been able to um, to get him, but they just had to look at other options because Eric Ten Hag spent a lot time a lot of time weighing up whether he wanted Garner for Man United um, this season. But he's a, he's a really clever midfielder. He'll get much more time on the ball in the Premier League than he did in the Championship as well. So uh, I think that could be a really good buy. It feels like it's, it's actually been quite a good week or so for Everton transfer-wise because Anthony Gordon seems mm. to have been sort of spurred on by the links with Chelsea, scored in back-to-back games for the first time. And, you know, Garner Gay was a good player for, for Everton when he was there previously, not seen him in the last few years. And Mopé's fairly dependable for what eight to ten goals in the Premier League so could have been worse for a team that doesn't score goals much he should fit right in (laughs) I'm thinking but I mean Gordon as you say back-to-back goals now how good is he I don't know. I don't think we've seen enough of him. He's, he certainly doesn't look £60 million good at this stage mm. of his career, particularly for a team who don't really need players in that position. But um, for Everton, he might be the difference maker. He might be the difference between them getting relegated or not this season. It's going to be interesting to see if he if he kicks on. You know, He claims to have ambitions to get in England's World Cup squad. I think that's a, a little bit optimistic. But yeah, let's see how he does. He's clearly a player of immense promise and I'm sure that he will be much better served not being transferred for £60 million at this stage of his career. Mm. Everton supporters will be delighted that he's not moving. We saw evidence of how much he means to them when one supporter dropped his own toddler in order to embrace uh, the <laughs> goal scorer. Before we move on, one quick bit of Liverpool news. It is transfer deadline day and there are suggestions that they might be signing uh, they might be signing Artur... Brazilian midfielder Artur on loan from Juventus, which is a terrific bit of business for Juventus. Uh, Juve, where he's barely featured, Barcelona, he arrived in a swap deal from the Catalan capital uh, for a bit with um, Marilyn Pjanic going the other way, and Barcelona were wildly celebrating having offloaded him back then. Uh, Juve now seemed to be shipping him off, which was certainly something they were looking to do this this summer. Uh, Liverpool this obviously another- ceased... Pianic signing from Liverpool, perhaps. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> but it's Artur. Yeah. But yeah, they obviously see something in him. Uh, myself, and I know far less about football uh, than, than, than Liverpool do, uh, I, I don't see it. But um, midfield reinforcement, I suppose. Merseyside Derby will be kicking off at 12.30 on Saturday. As for Liverpool's title rivals, Manchester City, or well, midweek they... We're involved in a 6-0 with Nottingham Forest. Matt Davis-Adams watching this one from behind the sofa. What did he miss? <laughs> I missed everything after 5-0 because I tapped out at that point. I've got to did be you? perfectly yeah. honest. Yeah, um, I'm really, really pleased I've only got BT Sport in standard definition as well because it meant that it was all quite hazy anyway. Um, mm. But yeah, it turns out Erling Haaland's, Haaland is, is really good at football and and. Championship defender last season, Joe Worrell, struggled to contain him. Who'd have thought? Uh, it's a shame that it was 6-0, but I feel like the, the Liverpool-Bournemouth game both helped and hindered Forrest here because it's taken some of the spotlight off because 6 nil's is not as bad as 9-0. But also I felt like if Liverpool hadn't won 9-0 at the weekend, then City might have taken their foot off the pedal a little bit in the second half. But they obviously wanted to get their goal difference up. And yeah, you know, Forrest were bottom of the championship with one point this time last year so it's not the end of the world no 
I feel hmm. slightly responsible because I tweeted at the weekend that, that since in the last three seasons there's been more nine nils than there have six nils. So Bingo. I kind of <laughs> ushered that into into reality. But yeah, I mean Erling Haaland is is insane. I mean he's to get to reach nine Premier League goals before you've made a hundred touches in the competition is is kind of off the charts. Some people, Duncan, are even predicting that he'll outscore Alexander Mitrovic this season. Crazy, but well, there you go. I mean, that's that's a bigger shout, I think. But he's he certainly started the, the season well. Two hat tricks mm. in five games is yeah, it's all right. Two hat-tricks in five days as well. Uh, just some other numbers, Charlie. Uh, nine goals in his first five Premier League appearances it is now. That's a new competition record, beating uh, legends like Mick Quinn and Sergio Aguero. He's the fastest player to reach two Premier League hat-tricks. And as Duncan mentioned, he's got to nine goals before 100 touches, which, yeah. Remind me, actually, what he cost? He was, what, 51 million, yes? Yeah, it and, wasn't an extraordinary figure. This is in the same transfer. This is the bit that sprains my mind a little bit. That this is in the same transfer window that, well, Calvin Phillips went for almost the same price. Richarlison was ten million more than that, and then I think in the last week or so, you're seeing various figures who, with all due respect, are maybe not as dangerous as Erling Haaland, going for double. Yeah, Anthony going for yeah almost double. Gordon being talked about for more. Yeah, I mean, he he is a phenomenon. I was going to say that when you're scoring more than Mick Quinn in your first five appearances. <laughs> when did when did Mickey Quinn become Mick Quinn? By the way, is that, is that something we're just giving him a bit more reverence as he's got older? Sorry, an yeah. Andrew Cole well, sort of situation. Mickey yeah. Evans took the Mickey crown, so you had to then revert back to Mick. <laughs> but it is fascinating watching him. I mean, because he. He does, in, in the way Gary Lineker used to, he does the hardest thing in football, but the hardest thing in football looks like the easiest, conversely. So you see him scoring these goals from a few yards out. And obviously, despite every rational part of you knowing that that's an incredible skill, there is a teeny part of you that's like, could I sort of do that? <laughs> like, if, if, like, he is sort of just standing there, waiting, and the ball seems to come to him. Obviously, what he's doing is basically genius, and the anticipation is off the charts, the movement is unreal. But, I mean, they showed a graphic on Match of the Day of where his goals mm. are coming from. And it, it is so illustrative. I mean, a bunch of them are in the six-yard box. They're all, you know, right dead in front of the goal. Um, it was interesting hearing Lineker talk about them as well. You know, the way it is it is just a numbers game. It's about making those, continually making those runs, a lot of which aren't spotted. A lot of the time it's very, very boring playing that role. But um, when you get the rewards like Harlan does, it's just amazing to watch. Yeah, I mean, if you look back, if you look at similar maps for sort of Sterling and Jesus at City, they, they scored a lot of goals in that position. But I think what City have done now, which is pretty scary for football, is that they've, you know, they create the best quality chances in football, in world football. A lot of them in that, in that sort of six-yard box or just outside. And now, as, you, as Charlie was saying, they've got this guy who's an incredibly perceptive finisher in that position. So it's kind of like a perfect storm for the rest of the teams because unless Haaland gets injured, I think he could score an absolute ton of goals. Really? Bold predictions there from <laughs> Duncan Alexander. More than Mickey Quinn? <laughs> well, let's wait and see. Um, just on just on Forest, by the way. Be sorry, before we move on from this game, it's, it's worth pointing out. Obviously, this is a heavy defeat, but they played Newcastle, West Ham, Everton, Spurs, and Man City so far, and taken four points. So I think that's probably about par 
from that. But now's where it, where it gets interesting. Now, they've got Bournemouth at home on Saturday, which has a kind of must-win feel to it. Then Leeds, Fulham, Leicester, Villa and Wolves. So there's opportunity within those games to, to pick up some points. So I think sort of by mid-October time, we'll get a better read on, on where Forest are going to be this season. Just a bit of historical context for goals in a season. Obviously, the record is 34 by Shearer and, and Cole in the Premier League season. Jimmy Greaves was the last player to get over 40 uh, in 1960-61. And obviously, Dixie Dean is the record holder with 60. Unlikely, but you know, at this rate, Harden would be... Extrapolating the, the, the data, Duncan, what, what does 9 and 5 get you when you multiply it by 38 times? That is about 70, isn't it? Uh... Or high 60s. Mm. Man City's new player, Manuel Akanji, could actually have answered this by now. It's 68 goals. So right. 68. Be. Well, that'd be yeah. interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah, as I say, Manuel Akanji uh, of Switzerland and formerly Borussia Dortmund is a new signing for Man City at centre-back. And as you may have seen on social media, he's really good at maths. 47 times 16. 752. Got you. <laughs> 64 times 21. Uh, yeah, you can just spit any two random numbers at him and he'll come straight back with what they multiply as. And probably other things too. That's the only only some game I've heard him doing. What about the match coming up Saturday, a little bit after Liverpool's game in the Merseyside derby? City will be at Aston Villa, where, and you won't be shocked about this, they've got a terrific record. Villa who are not in the best of shapes right now, won't have just Haaland uh, to contend with potentially because, of course, Julian Alvarez also announced himself uh, with a brace in his first Premier League start for Man City midweek. Yeah, he feels like the album track on an LP where (laughs) Haaland's like the hit single, but, you know, quietly really, really impressive. Right, the deep cut that might well turn out to be every bit as beloved of fans. Mm. I do remember as well, Villa did have a thrilling win over City at Villa Park 3-2 in the 2013-14 season, a season best remembered for the slip by their now manager, Stephen Mm. Gerrard. So maybe in some weird way, that's an omen. Okay. Since then, the last 13 meetings have produced one draw and 12 City wins. But, you know, it's a fresh game on Saturday. Anyway, we've got loads more to talk about. So after this, ooh, Saints-Chelsea, what happened there? Hello, I'm Mark Chapman, and we finally reached the closing week of the summer transfer window. Premier League clubs have spent more than their German, Italian, Spanish and French counterparts combined, and they are not done yet. Don't miss any of the twists and turns with myself, David Ornstein, Adam Crafton, and many more on the Athletic Football Podcast this week as we take you inside the deals that really matter. We're free to listen wherever you get your podcasts, and we're ad-free on the Athletic app. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. We're sponsored for this episode of the Totally Football Show by Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, which is up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Now, because you listen to The Totally Football Show, you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash totally, all in lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash totally to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash totally. We're all driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. According to their own survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Remember the last time you were hiring and how slow and overwhelming it was? Well, you don't need to go through all that again. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. And because you listen to The Totally Football Show, Indeed is going to give you a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash totally. That's I-N-D-E-E-D.com slash totally. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed at Indeed.com. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Listen to some managerial changes in the championship. Tony Mowbray is the new man at Sunderland after Alex Neal left them for Stoke. Tony Mowbray getting off to a winning start midweek. Who is it against? I'll know when I listen to brand new podcast, What the EFL? <laughs> Matt, who is it against? It was against Rotherham, who huh? were unbeaten um, on their return to the championship. So good win for Mowbray there. Also midweek, Preston North End had a 1-0 win over Coventry. Which means that they are, well, they've kept a clean sheet in all of their opening seven games of the season. They've only scored two goals themselves, but still. They're only the third team in English Football League history to begin a season with a run of seven clean sheets. To give you, you know, put it in perspective on that, the last one to do it was Portsmouth in 1922. Crikey. I like how they let it all hang out in the in the cup, though, and just forget that. They won 4-1 at Preston and then lost 2-1 at Wolves. Just, yeah. Nice. Magnificent. All right, well, so when is What the EFL out, Matt? Uh, there is a, an episode which is currently out now, uh, mm. reflecting on, on last weekend and uh, looking ahead to the big games this week and hearing from Jamie Mackey, to oh, former yeah. QPR, Forest, Oxford man, and there'll be another one on Tuesday of next week. All right, bingo. Lovely stuff. Uh, Thursday, today, as we record, is deadline day. And it looks like Chelsea are about to sign Aubameyang who hasn't had the best of times uh, of late at Barcelona, subject of a what, a violent assault in a break-in in his home, which left him with a broken jaw. Uh, our best wishes to him. 
in football terms, the move to Chelsea. How do we think this is going to work out? It's fascinating. It's it's another uh, huge backing of Thomas Tuchel, I think. And I think it's it's really interesting that, that if Chelsea were in the, the state they are now, having started the season effectively playing well in one game and, and not winning that, then Tuchel would be under some serious pressure, I think. But he seems to be being really heavily backed by Todd Bowley and, and um, the rest of the new Chelsea ownership group. And uh, Bamiang is clearly somebody who he's got uh, a very strong existing relationship with. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how that works out. If it's two years plus an option for an extra one, that feels like quite a lot for a 33-year-old. But yeah, we shall see. Chelsea's transfer approach you know has has been scattergun and, and that is understandable because they've got people who haven't done this before doing it but yeah there's not that much rhyme or reason to it it would seem mm. is this the same Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang that Arsenal was so keen to get rid of Charlie yeah I mean the interesting thing with Aubameyang obviously is, is how you manage him and Tuchel always talked about you know painting him as a sort of lovable rogue who would be late for meetings but you know I think he said that I would just tell him the meeting started 15 minutes earlier and that was the way we solved it so it will be quite interesting because obviously Arteta um, fell out with him quite badly and was basically insisted that he was moved on so maybe Tuchel's softer approach uh, with him will work as it did at Dortmund but I mean I just felt watching their game Chelsea uh, the other night against Southampton you think how many really, really expensive forwards they've brought in over the last couple of years. It is extraordinary. And I do wonder at what point, you know, maybe it's not ideal if you're Thomas Tuchel and you're, you know, there's lots of changes to your squad, but he's had some real gifts given to him. And and as Matt says, the, the coherence thing is an issue because, you know, I, I think of Tuchel as wanting these kind of versatile forwards who are all kind of, rotate and move around and then he brought a Lukaku and that's not really his game and Aubameyang is not he's a finisher he'll score goals for them but he's not someone who will really do a whole lot else and maybe he wants variety in his squad Tuchel but it does all seem very very disjointed and yeah just to see how kind of how short of ideas they, they look in an attacking sense at the moment given how many players they brought in for huge sums and meanwhile, at the back, they're looking... I mean, remember when Tuchel came in, the, the reason Lampard kind of left was that the defence sort of fell to pieces and they were, they were really suspect, um, both from set pieces and open play. And, and this season, Chelsea have considered the third most open play XG in the league behind Forest and, and Bournemouth, which, you know, obviously two promoted teams. That is, like, if there's a red warning light on a, on a club season, that is, a, that is an early one. Mm. So they've got issues at both ends of the pitch and... You know, Southampton massively deserved the three points in that game. Um, so this yes. was this was Tuesday night, and at St Mary's, Southampton two, Chelsea one. Matt, you were commentating on this uh, on this encounter, which saw Chelsea taking the lead through Raheem Sterling, but then Romeo Lavia's or Lavia's uh, remarkable equaliser, and then I guess equally remarkable. Uh, having equalised, Saints then took the lead and held on to the lead. This is a, a club that last season led the Premier League in conceding from winning positions. I believe that so far this campaign, they're actually the best team in, in terms of winning points from the uh, from from uh, going behind. 
Yeah, they, I mean, they're either all or nothing, aren't they, Southampton? They either look like they've got tremendous spirit, which could match anybody in the league, you know, brilliant work rate and, and a good tactical plan, or, or they get absolutely battered. And it, and it was the opposite in this game. I really like Bella Kotchap. He looks mm. like he's going to be a lot of fun. An excellent defender. Plays there was... with relish, eh, Matt? Yeah, very <laughs> yeah. good. Yeah. There was one moment where he was outnumbered three to one by Chelsea attackers and he still managed to hold them all up. And then he's kind of whipping the crowd up and all that good stuff um, as well. But yeah, Southampton looked decent in this game, but then you just don't know what you're going to get from them next week. I mean, even Adam Armstrong scored in this game mm. and I think he'd gone 22 um, without, maybe Chelsea will say the, the pitch didn't help, but I thought it was odd that Chelsea started with a back four in this game, given that you've got, what, 33-year-old Azpilicueta, 37-year-old Thiago Silva, and a 31-year-old Kaladu Koulibaly who's really struggled in his time at the start of the Premier League. So I think they'll probably switch to, to three at the back, and obviously not having Reese James and Kante is a big thing. But yeah, Southampton, give them credit. They were really good. Bella Kotchap in particular, and they've, they've got this thing where they, they took the guy who, who worked at City, didn't they? I forget his name, but, but that's helped them get a lot of their young talent this summer. Lavia was one of those for 10 million. Bazuno as well, the goalkeeper. And, and you know, for, for a few years of Southampton's recruitment being a little bit iffy, it looks as though they might have got that sorted, which is obviously um, a big benefit for them in terms of their hopes for this season. All right. Well, speaking of recruitment, not sure what Chelsea, what the Aubameyang move would take Chelsea's spending to. Past a quarter of a billion this summer, is that correct? John Sands asking after well, he says a quarter of a billion, spent on new players this transfer window. Is the Chelsea squad any better than it was at the end of last season or actually worse? It's older. I mean, Southampton have got the youngest, uh, you know, starting 11 in the, in the league. We've seen how Arsenal have lowered their uh, average age and have, you know, got a really, you know, up-and-coming team, it looks like. Chelsea are creeping up that chart and um, it feels quite short-termist and... You know that's okay if the if the players come in and really transform you for a season and get you, you know, maintain your Champions League place, etc. But at the moment, it's looking like Chelsea could could struggle to even come in the top four. So um, it's a yeah, it's a, it's a lot, a lot of risk. Again, mm. it it comes back to the, that cohesion thing because Duncan's right there, and obviously you know Koulibaly and Aubameyang at one end of the age scale, but they've bought, also bought in Chukwemeka and Kasedi and and these sort of young players that they're looking at for the future as well. So it's an interesting strategy, I think. Um, not to come over all Karl Anka, but where's my director of football? That that would probably help if they could get somebody in in that role before right. January. Okay, Chelsea have dropped more points than they've actually taken this season. Thomas Tuchel saying post-match at St Mary's, it doesn't take a lot to beat us. The last time they lost this many of their opening five games was 2015-16 when it all blew up under Jose Mourinho and they finished 10th. Are we seeing, is the groundwork there for a similar meltdown, do you think, this time? Or will it all come together once the players have had a bit of time together and perhaps once Wesley Fofana has joined the throng? Chelsea are resilient. I mean, they, they do often find themselves in crisis-y situations. I mean, you think they, they won the Champions League in a season when, you know, they sacked their manager. I mean, not that it's unusual, but they sacked the manager halfway through and they looked in absolute shambles. Um, so, you know, and, and Tuchel has generally done very well for them. But I, but I do think they are in a, they're definitely in a battle for the top four. I mean, they, they, they were wobbling second half of last season. Mm. They, they sort of staggered over the line um, with their rivals picking up more points than them in the second half of the season. So the momentum's not really with them. They haven't, they haven't played well consistently for quite a while. Right. But that, that was the thing you were saying. Tuchel 
generally does quite well for them. But it feels like a while since that's been the case. Certainly domestically, I think. You know, he's, let's not forget he's lost three domestic cup finals. But also, we need to take into account the impact that the sanctions had in the second half of last season. I think that, that kind of that that is a, a reasonable caveat to apply to to Chelsea's recent Premier League record. So let's see how he gets on now. West Ham on Saturday, then Fulham, Liverpool, Palace, Wolves, and Villa. So with the exception of Liverpool, maybe a chance to start a run there. Okay, West Ham at the weekend, as you say. A West Ham side who are showing some signs of recovering themselves from a pretty dire start to the season. Uh, A win at the weekend and a draw against Spurs in a game Wednesday night, which, Charlie, you went along to at the London Stadium. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, West Ham did well because it, it, it did feel like one of those games where the first goal was going to be really important, given that West Ham have made this slow start to the season. And you did think if they went behind, the fans might get on their back and it might all become a bit tetchy. Uh, but actually, they came they came back well in the second half. Definitely deserved a point and could have nicked it at the end. Jared Bowen flashed one just, just across the goal. Um, if they play with that sort of intensity, they will start winning games. Um I just think they, they looked a bit short of confidence um, and, I, and I guess that's unsurprising given the way they've started the season. Antonio was unlucky um, hitting the post. Yeah, a draw probably fair. Neither, neither team really did enough to win it. Hmm. What do you think about their prospects at Stamford Bridge? I think they've got a chance. It, it, it is just hard to know. With I mean, Chelsea, you know, the way they shot themselves in the foot against Leicester and then again against Southampton, really. So you wouldn't you wouldn't put it past them to sort of give West Ham a bit of a leg up in that game. And I do think West Ham will have got some some belief from this and also going to Villa and sort of eking that one out. I wonder as well at this stage of the season, the fact they've played two more games than everyone else because of being in Europe, whether that's a help or a hindrance. Um, I feel like at this point, it might actually be more of a help in, in sharpening up some of those players. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think they've got a chance there. Okay. Spurs, meanwhile... Who are 11 games unbeaten now in the Premier League under Antonio Conte will also be facing a London derby again this weekend when they face Fulham. That's Saturday, three o'clock at home. Fulham, hmm, they uh, gave Brighton their first defeat of the season midweek. Did anybody catch this? Saw a bit of it, yeah. They're safe. They're safe now. No team <laughs> that's got eight points from five games has ever gone down from the Premier League. So, uh, Book those holidays, summer 2023, it's all, it's all sorted. What does this mm. mean for Norwich? That means they can't get promoted, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, that is a, yeah, that's correct. That's such a blow for them. <laughs> so early in the season as well. <laughs> Brilliant start to the campaign for a, a great week, in fact, all round for Alexander Mitrovic, who not only became the first opposition player to score against Seagulls this season, but also score, saw Scott Parker fired too, which would be especially satisfying. <laughs> For him, he here's a number, Duncan. I think this probably comes from you. He score, has scored 48 league goals since the start of last season, which is exactly the same number as the entire Brighton team have managed in the same period. It's very true. I mean, obviously, the caveat being that most of Mitrovic's came in the championship, but it is great to see him play so well. I mean, there was, you know, I think. Two seasons ago was not a fair reflection of, of what he can do. He has scored 11 goals in a Premier League season before. Um, he's obviously a very popular player. He seems to you know, really enjoy playing for Fulham. And uh, it's good to see. I always think it's really good when you have clubs like Fulham where they've got a player like that where, who is a real sort of totem for the team and the fans. And yeah, he's, he's proved a massive handful for, for defences this season. So, uh, mm. And as we know, he's going to score more than Haaland. So it's, it's nailed on. 
Yeah, absolutely. 70, 71 for Mitro. Is Marco Silva due some love at long last? Yeah, probably. There's always a bit of a suspicion about him, isn't there? I think that, that Everton spell and the way that he left Watford w- was quite damaging. But you, know, you look at what... It, it's quite easy to sort of discount what teams do in the Championship. But the sheer number of goals that Fulham scored last season, they won two games 7-0. They scored six on a couple of occasions, a few fives in there as well. So it's not like he's this kind of pragmatic doer Portuguese manager who's uh, coming to, to kind of set up not to lose but but goes to win games and and I don't think he's been particularly well backed uh in the transfer market the, the guy who does that for Fulham Shade Khan's son is is seems to be more concerned with his wrestling promotion than, than actually signing players for his Premier League team so so given that he's doing a doing a really good job thus far mm. Well, it'll be interesting to see what they come up with at the Tottenham Hotspur stadium they've only won one of their last 13 visits to Spurs in all competitions I can sort of imagine Mitrovic being a wrestling villain character. Mm. So a that, heel, 100%. No. Yeah. A yeah. heel, well, exactly. Erling Haaland is definitely a heel. I was thinking that oh, yesterday. Yeah. He's a monster heel, especially with his um, post-match Time interviews. Up. I think that okay. really, really enhances his, his heel character and makes him very difficult to warm to. But yeah, Mitrovic, that'd be a decent tag team, you know, throw them both together. <laughs> God, that, that would be amazing. Mm. Don't there you go, Man City. Ideas. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine? The, the Fulham Spurs game should be really interesting. I mean, especially, it's a shame because uh, Christian Romero probably won't be fit enough to start because him against Mitrovic would be such a good battle. Um, really, really spicy. But yeah, I mean, Spurs as well, they, they, they're in a weird position because they're, they're doing well points-wise. 11 points, they're third. But there's this slight feeling amongst fans that they've been fairly uninspiring. Um, so I think they could do with a emphatic win on the weekend um, just to kind of you know give a bit of a statement and a bit of a lift because it's been Mm. a bit flat so far in the last few games anyway Champions League coming up after the weekend for Spurs and indeed everyone involved in that competition Uh, Olympic Marseille is that right Charlie the first game yeah yeah Yeah. next Wednesday featuring Alexis Sanchez these days of course and Genduzzi and Kalasinac and Nuno Tavares and Payet there's a lot of former Spurs' rival is going to be in the building. Wow. A sizzling encounter awaiting there. And still to come in this Tootley football show, one or two other things about the midweek and a big nod to what the Gunners are up to ahead of Sunday afternoon's whopping Man United-Arsenal game. This is the Tootley Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Also this midweek, Arsenal beat Villa 2-1. And Crystal Palace, Crystal Palace sorry, had a 1-1 draw with Brentford, which featured Wilfred Zaha with his 12th goal in the last 17 league matches. And it was a beauty too. Cancelled out, however, by Johan Wisser with uh, two minutes to go, much to uh, Zaha's chagrin. I mean, you're talking about bold and frank post-game interviews. Uh, I think he went some distance beyond Scott Parker and his uh, obvious unhappiness. Just one lapse in concentration, it just it ruins all the hard work. We literally just had to just keep it tight. It's like as soon as we went in the lead, we just started to defend. I don't see why we do that. There you go, that we was what uh, Palace and Brentford did. What have they got coming up this weekend? Uh, Palace are at ooh, Newcastle, while Brentford hosts Leeds. Meanwhile, Arsenal... 
who will be heading to Old Trafford, maintained their perfect start with a 2-1 win over Aston Villa. Adrian Clark tweeting this number sequence post-game, 2-1-8-3. Anybody know what it is? I think it's the minutes after conceding at home that they then scored themselves, which is impressive. It is impressive. It's also his pen number, so he's a bit <laughs> silly doing that. Fill your boots. <laughs> Gee, I wouldn't be surprised if it was. So further evidence of the new Arsenal being legit. Yeah, also just on a number, I'm glad we've got you here, Duncan, because I was very unimpressed with this from the BBC yesterday, Arsenal numbers. They tweeted out, Arsenal have never finished outside the top two when they've won their opening five games of a Premier League season. And then the eye emoji, they're kind of like, ooh, that's interesting. Mm. You can't never something that's happened only once. And they finished second that season. What they're saying there is well, the only other time this happened, they came second. They've done it three times. They've not done in the Premier League. Times. Oh, they've no, not, not in the Premier League. The other, yeah, 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 you're right. So. so this is something that's happened once before and they finished second. I don't think you can, can you never something that's, it's like saying, nah, you know, England that's... have never lost a World Cup final. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, you're right. It's um, but I think it kind of also speaks to the. I think there's like a an underground folk need for upbeat Arsenal content. It's like latent. It's just waiting to burst. You know, there's been nearly twenty years without a league title, and you know, I think that the the excitement. And I'm not I'm not going for Richard Keys here and saying that people should be happy. I think they really should, and it's really enjo- enjoyable to see. But I think. You get this point with clubs. You saw it with Liverpool the season when they they won the league a few years back. That just this sheer excitement that that the good times are back. And yeah, okay, it might be a bit early to say that about Arsenal, but to come back against Villa, okay, they let in a goal against Aston Villa, but they did just come straight back, and it's that sort of character that has been massively missing from the club over the last sort of ten years. So um, Mm. yeah, I think it's it's good. It's also the fact they seem to have all the pieces in place this time around. They've got a goal scorer up front, Gabriel Jesus, who scored and assisted six goals in his first five Premier League games. Odegaard, although he's now uh, sadly injured, not sure what the uh, situation is regarding uh, his potential involvement on Sunday. Uh, and a, a defence that does defending and things, even though, as you say, they did concede that goal to Villa. But one extraordinary goal it was from Douglas Luiz, directly from the corner. And not his first rodeo. It's the sort of... Mm. His, his special move. Top flight Joe Jacobson. <laughs> the, the start they've made has been brilliant. I, I, I think the, the really interesting thing is that what they've done in winning these first five games, they, they won a lot of these types of games last season, to be fair to them as well. You know, they got 69 points, uh, which, is, which is, you know, would normally get you fourth. And, and they did tend to win these sort of games. What they didn't do, though, you know, last season when they were on a decent run at the time as well, they went to Old Trafford, lost three two in a game where they'd been ahead, and really then sat sat off and looked a little nervy. The, the question is, can they go and assert themselves against a rival? Um, mm. And so it will be very revealing. I think the shame for them is, I mean, if Odegaard's out, that is mm. massive because he really does stitch everything together. Partey and Zinchenko are also very important to the way they play. You know, they they both look like they've missed the last two games anyway. Uh, so that isn't, and that's probably the area where they're weakest is depth wise anyway, is midfield. When you look at the players who come in, I mean, El Neni's out uh, anyway himself, but the drop off from Partey to him is 
monumental. So I think that's where you would that that's where the concern is. You're, you're right, James. Their spine is very very good. It's whether they what cost them last season. They had an eleven first eleven that was more than good enough to get top four. But then when you're bringing in El Nenny. Nuno Tavares, etc. Their squad is better this time, but I still think in that midfield area they're a bit short. Well, maybe they'll change that today. They can bring Zinchenko into into central midfield, they can. obviously, which would help. I think that Eddie Nketiah has been really transformative in the last two games as well as a substitute. Where you know that's kind of the point in his career where he kind of should be. And last year, he you know towards the end, he was the you know reliant. They were reliant on him purely for goals as a starter. So, but it, Charlie's right. In an era when pretty much every team was rocked up to Old Trafford and you know ended a long hoodoo. I mean, Arsenal did win there in 2020, but they've only won one of their last 15 away games at Old Trafford. Ooh. And they do maybe it is a hangover from the from the early 2000s, but they do have this sort of this sort of collective meltdown when they go to Old Trafford generally. Um, mm. So I think this is a big test. If they can if they can go to United and, and win, then. They could be the real deal. If they go to United and win, they'll have won their opening six league matches in the season and they have never not won the title <laughs> when doing <laughs> doing that. Eyes emoji. It's, it's, <laughs> Eyes emoji. It's nice that this fixture feels a bit more relevant again, isn't it? Because it was a bit mm. like the kind of out-of-fashion Premier League rivalry for a few Felt years. like soccer aid for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> There was also a strong rubbernecking element, I think, to, to most people's in it interest. But uh, they're going to give United. We don't know exactly what state they're going to be in after Thursday night's clash with Leicester at the King Power. But you're confident that Arsenal are going to make a go of it this time, Charlie? Well, I think a lot of it does come down to those injuries. I think if they're without all of Odegaard, Partey and Zinchenko, then mm. I think that's tough. And then you'd say a draw is actually a very good result. But yeah, I mean, Duncan's right about other teams with their hoodoos. I remember in the 13-14 seat, the Moy season, everyone was going to Old Trafford and, and just like, ah, 80 years since we won? Thank you. <laughs> Arsenal, of course, lost 1-0 to a Robin Van Persie goal. So it's not a game. The fixture is so weighted against them that I don't think it's one you that they ever feel especially confident about. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it'll be a very difficult game uh, on Sunday as well. I'd, I'd, okay. I'd be very surprised if they won, uh, I have to say, just, just just with those unavailabilities and United having a bit of momentum. But yeah, if they do, then, then that really is, that's their first big statement of the season, I think. Mm. This won't age well, but I mean, he's got loads of midfield injuries. Just go and get Tielemans today for 25 million now. He's, he's out of contract at the end of what, next, this season? The end of the season, yeah. All right. It's like a no-brainer. That from Mr. Bournemouth are going down <laughs> over there. How are Wolves getting on, by the way, James? They haven't won a game yet, have they? No. No. All right. Well, who knows what the rest of Thursday will bring, not just at the King Power, but also on the transfer front. We will be reacting, I guess, a bit to that, but mostly to the uh, to the weekend's action when we return on Monday. Uh, loads of other great football podcasts for you to enjoy in the meantime, including... Matt with What the EFL and Straight Out of Cobham. Charlie with View from the Lane, a Tottenham Hotspur football podcast. And Duncan, are you doing are you doing another podcast? Yeah, we've got a Stats Out of Context podcast. There should be one Brilliant. of those next week. So, yeah. All right. Of course, and Charlie football cliches also, I should give a nod yeah. to as well. I was just going to say, Charlie can also be enjoyed in the ever-popular, the disturbingly popular football cliches. <laughs> podcast now twice weekly mm. all right that's it for today have a great weekend everybody thank you for being with us and for now from all of us here it's goodbye 
You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.